I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. Just bullying my dog friend Rosie there. She's looking at me with pity. Going, oh yeah, okay. Get it out of your system. Maybe you're listening a long time in the future. In which case, perhaps you may not remember the Hanforth Parish Council meeting. Who knows what future viral fun with subsequent controversy and unforeseen uh, consequences <laughs> you'll be having. Uh-oh. Rosie has spotted a couple of deer. And she was thinking about chasing after them. But she gave up after a little bit. They're too big and fast. Their white tails bobbing up and down. Sorry, Rosie. But you have no authority here, Rosie Buxton. None whatsoever. <laughs> I'm doing it again. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Didn't say hello, did I? It's bitey out here. We've had a few hours of Beast from the East-style snow flurries. Not too bad so far, but it's quite grey, albeit with the sun trying to poke through a bright spot in the greyness. Quite windy, and the windy has got a snow edge to it last beast from the east it was like hoth out here where's hoth said my wife when i said that the other day me and my son exchanged oh dear oh dear you don't know where hoth is looks (laughs) it's all happening anyway look oh icicles are beginning to form on my unruly eyebrows and the extremities of my face are beginning to lose sensation. So, let me tell you a little bit about podcast number 147, which features a rambly conversation with British author and podcast host, Elizabeth Day. A sprinkling of day facts for you. When she was 12, Elizabeth wrote to the editor of her local newspaper and said, you need a children's columnist, and I'm 12, and I'm your woman. So it was that at just 12 years old, Elizabeth got her first journalistic job as a columnist for the Derry Journal in Ireland, where she and her family were living at the time. Elizabeth went on to achieve a double first in history while studying at Cambridge University, before returning to journalism as an award-winning writer for publications that included the Daily Telegraph, Elle Magazine, The Evening Standard, and The Observer. Since 2012, she's also written four novels. And last year, the second of two non-fiction books was published related to her highly successful podcast, How to Fail. It's called How to Fail, but it's done very well. That's ironic. Elizabeth began presenting the podcast in 2018 
and has spoken to the likes of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Gloria Steinem, Malcolm Gladwell, Dame Kelly Holmes, Alan de Botton, Nadia Hussein, Bernadine Evaristo, and even Adam Buxton. How did she get him? About what they have learned from their failures. My conversation with Elizabeth was recorded remotely towards the end of November 2020. Around the time Elizabeth was promoting her book, Failosophy, a handbook for when things go wrong, which features lessons learned from some of her podcast guests and from experiences in her own life. We exchanged advice on what to say to people when they ask you for advice. And I do a sweary joke in there, which I apologize for, because I don't think there's too much swearing in the rest of the podcast, and I just got in there very early with an unnecessary F-bomb. Sure, I could have bleeped it, but I haven't. Anyway, we also exchanged interview tips and memories of celebrity encounters that went wrong. And in the second half of the podcast, we spoke about ways of dealing with some of the more painful things experienced by Elizabeth's guests. The death of one of your children, for example, albeit a grown-up child, and by Elizabeth herself, namely her divorce, infertility treatment, and miscarriages. Though we don't get into any detail, and the conversation focuses on how to get beyond misfortunes like that, I wanted to give you a heads-up here in the introduction, just in case the mention of those subjects is not what you need right now. But we began by checking recording levels and exchanging podcast microphone bands. And that reminds me, in last week's podcast with Stuart Lee, I forgot to thank the team at Gear for Music. That's Gear with the number four, Music, the online music store. They sent out a USB microphone to Stuart with their customary super speed and efficiency There is a link in the description of this podcast. If you're also in the market for a mic, you'll be able to find the one that uh, they sent out, the B-Caster. Basically, if it's audio-related, check out Gear for Music. That's my taking the piss out of plugging something while actually plugging it voice, which I do a little more of in a moment. But first, it's jingle time! better better that's perfect now you're just showing off now i can just do a series of voiceovers for you i can do an advert for my microphone the <laughs> shaw mv7 which allows you to connect via xlr or usb simultaneously with a variety of easy to use controls is that the one you sent to louis through that he later called crappy <laughs> no that was a i sent him the yeti blue which is also good. Yes, that's a classic. That's a podcasting classic. It's really a great mic. Very easy to use. Wonderful results. Mm -hmm. What kind of mic are you using? 
I mean, I'm not using that mic. I'm using a Rode USB mic, which comes with its own pop shield and is very reasonably priced. Yeah, no, it's a very good one. Highly recommended. Anyway, so I thought we could just chat about mics and pop shields for quite a long time. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's all most people seem to message me on Instagram about, so I'm completely fine with it. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) Have you ever just replied to one of those queries by saying, Google it? (laughs) That's what I did. I had to Google it. Not yet. (laughs) I know, me too. It is bizarre, isn't it? The way people ask you for knowledge that is readily available at the click of their own button. I just ignore most of them. You should just reply, fuck you. (laughs) <laughs> what I'll reply now is Adam Buxton told me to say fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm going to start replying when people ask me for advice. <laughs> what do you say when people do ask you for advice? Because that happens every now and again. And it seems crazy to me. Like you're a bit different because I perceive you as being more together and, and you talk about these things a little bit more and you think about them more. But me, when people ask me for advice, I'm like, who do you think I am? <laughs> I'm not qualified. What do you say to people? It's an interesting one because my route to being asked advice has been different from that of a celebrity. So a comedian or an actor who becomes famous for doing comedy or acting and is then asked for their opinion on a whole range of things from Brexit to who should be the next James Bond. My my route seems slightly different in that because I set myself up to talk about failure, I sort of understand why people then ask me about it. Because mm-hmm. I have spent a lot of time over the last two and a half years asking incredibly nosy questions of people about failure and resilience and how to overcome it. But I do feel like a bit of an imposter because I never set myself up as an expert. It was purely yeah. a route to having a series of quite nosy chats. <laughs> I always marvel at people who reply to that question in a very confident way. Yeah, here's what you do. And I'm talking about people literally just asking, have you got any advice in a very general way, as if to say, I think what's implied is, you know, you've done well for yourself. You've got a nice life. Any advice? I always say, just keep on doing it. I feel like... Keep on trucking. Keep on. You don't just say Google it, you fuckwit. No, I don't say that. I, I mean... Google it would be a good bit of advice. Because <laughs> I don't know if you've ever That's, been on the internet, but there's a lot of stuff on there and you can find out pretty much anything you want to know. I mean, that's genuinely how I started a podcast. Yeah. I Googled, how do you start a podcast? Right. Like, what, what listenership should I put in a pitch document? How can I hire a sound engineer who'll make me sound like I know what I'm doing? Uh-huh. I'm interested to know what, the, what kind of answers you got. How do you find a sound engineer? Super easy. So um, one of my things was that I knew because I was a complete unknown quantity as a podcaster and because I wanted people to talk about failure, which is quite an intimate subject. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that I wanted to make it as easy for the person as possible. So I wanted to have a mobile sound engineer who could make it sound studio quality, but who could come to wherever the person in question needed to be. I basically Googled like mobile sound engineer podcasts and Chris Sharp came up and he was my sound engineer from the very beginning and still is now and he's absolutely brilliant also you have someone to blame if it all screws up exactly he's basically my professional scapegoat has he ever massively screwed up or maybe it wasn't him that screwed up but something just went wrong and you've lost the files and it just hasn't recorded 
He has never screwed up and I'm now reaching to touch some wood just in case that was tempting fate. I have screwed up as a journalist when my dictaphone has failed to work and that's the worst. And now if I'm doing a journalistic print interview, I will always record, but I always take uh, shorthand notes as well, which is quite disarming for the person being interviewed because I do this kind of automatic writing thing where I'm constantly writing, but also looking at them. So, oh. so I imagine it looks like I'm being possessed by a spirit. I was going to ask you actually what your biggest disasters as a journalist have been. And were there any encounters that just left you feeling absolutely shredded? Because you used to do celebrity interviews, right, with some quite big celebrities. I did, yeah. So for eight years, I was a star feature writer for The Observer. And a lot of that involved going to press junkets for actors who wanted to promote certain films. And one of the worst experiences I ever had was when I was sent to interview Rob Lowe for a film that he did, which starred and was written, and I think directed by Ricky Gervais, called The Invention of Lying. Oh, yeah. Yes. I flew to Toronto to do this interview and I was excited because, you know, I liked Rob Lowe on the West Wing and I felt like I'd like grown up with him as part of the Brat Pack. And um, I turned up at the allotted hotel and there was no one there. And it turned out that the PR had given me the wrong hotel And so I turned up slightly late and slightly flustered, which wasn't great in the first place. And then we sat down to do the interview. And within 14 minutes, one four, I asked him a question about whether he found it difficult to trust people. And the reason I had asked him that is because he was the subject of a number of lawsuits Mm -hmm. launched by former employees, including nannies. And he had brought up the trust issue. And I thought it was a sort of friendly way of getting into that territory. And he just kind of glazed over and the publicist came in and shut down the interview and said, uh, Mr. Lowe has to go now. And I didn't know what had happened or what had gone down or if I'd done anything wrong. And I was so sort of taken aback by it. And he did. He walked out and I had to fly back to London with 14 minutes of interview on tape. And it turned out later that the publicist had intended to send me a list of banned topics on which were his various lawsuits. I have my issues with that as well, because I sort of feel that a grown up should be able to say, do you know what, I, I, I can't answer that. Well, exactly. And that would be fine. I would move on. Yeah. <laughs> so that was like one of the biggest nightmares I've had. Oh, I've been in similar sorts of situations where maybe the stakes were a little lower, but You just come out of it feeling utterly humiliated and also, I don't know about you, but just enraged because I've got quite a big ego on me and also I'm thin skinned. So (laughs) the combination is sometimes deadly when you encounter higher status people than yourself. You know what I mean? You had your Rob Lowe one. Mine was with Michael Shannon. Do you know that actor? Yes. He's very tall, isn't he? He's very tall. How would you characterize... 90% of the parts he plays. Uh, Outsider weirdos. Yeah. With a a sinister intent. There you go. And also about to explode with rage. (laughs) He's in Boardwalk Empire. He plays the agent in there who's who's kind of very tightly wound and, and flagellates himself in private for kicks and stuff like that. Anyway, a lot of the parts he plays are like that. I interviewed him at the Apple Store because he was in a film. He was promoting a film called The Iceman about about some serial killer or something that he was playing. You know, another guy who's tightly wound and then <laughs> explodes into rage and violence. 
And so at a certain point, I asked him a question and said, you know, to what extent are these roles informed by your own propensity to, to keep things a little bit tightly wrapped and, 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 you know, maybe a little bit of an obvious question, but I was interested to know. I mean, he didn't start shouting or anything, but he was absolutely fed up with the question. Clearly, he gets asked it a lot because he's always playing those parts. So mm. he just thought, ugh, another idiot asking me that stupid question. And he just couldn't conceal his contempt. And it was so weird and annoying. I just thought, come on, mate. Just if you don't like the question, then explain why you don't like the question. Don't just exactly. treat me like a complete prick even if I might be. Was this for the podcast? No, this was pre-podcast days while me and Joe were on BBC Six Music, those, those kinds of times. And I was excited to meet him. I just, I, I thought he's a brilliant actor, still do, you know. Maybe he was just having an off day. I don't know. Are you one of those people who, in an interview, if someone loses it and there is a, an appalling shift and drop in atmosphere, can you sit with the discomfort or... Or do you need to fill the silence? No, I can't sit with the discomfort. And yes, I do need to step in and do something about it. I just flounder. That's why it's, it was so humiliating at the Apple store, because there is somewhere a video of that encounter. And I have never had the guts to actually seek it out and look at it. Maybe if I looked at it, it wouldn't be that bad. But ugh, it was awful. What about you? Uh, I also need to fill the silence. And I know that that's, that sort of goes against the cardinal rule of interviewing, which is that you should be comfortable enough to leave space for people to express themselves um, and often say things that they don't really want to say. Um, I'm essentially looking at the markings on your beard. Oh, yeah. You have the most phenomenally artistic beard. Mm. The marking, I've just never, it's like marble. It's like <laughs> veins of marble. It's a very beautiful thing. Thanks so much. It was described as a badger pattern by Hadley Freeman uh, when she interviewed me. It's a sort of inverse badger pattern, though, because there's more, I was about to say there's more white than black, but then I felt that might be. No, rude. I mean, it, anyway. <laughs> at some point it will be all white. It's a shame because it means that there's not too much definition. And actually, the shape of my face is now defined by the dark areas. Like Boy George, when he has all that dark makeup on yeah. his neck. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're going for. What did you used to think when he used to do that? I always thought it was funny. Do you think he was deliberately being funny? Listeners, we're talking about... When Boy George, in phases of his life when he was heavy around the face, he would kind of create a jawline by literally just painting the underside of his jaw black. <laughs> so he would sort of paint away his double chin, as it were. My main thing was that must take a lot of time. And it also must kind of leak off onto any clothing that you're wearing. Right. So I had a kind of very pragmatic response to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think George is used to a kind of high-maintenance fashion regimen, though, isn't he? So, Now, here's a question. I've written some questions for you, Elizabeth, but obviously, we, you know, I didn't even really say hello to you in a, in a normal way at the top there. And I apologise. No, are we recording? I had yeah, no yeah. idea. No. We steamed in. <laughs> Let me just take my foot off the chat accelerator right now and say, hey, how are you doing? Nice to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Not at all. And how are you? Are you happy at the moment? Are you you're in promotional mode and um, you're talking about your book, Philosophy, and how's everything else? 
I actually feel emotionally exhausted. Yeah. So it's a great time to be doing this podcast. But I think, like so many people, I feel like I'm trudging towards the end of a really seismic year. And within that year, I have enormous gratitude for the fact that I've been able to make a living and have a roof over my head and my loved ones are healthy. And it's also been a very odd time to be promoting, as you say, the latest book, because given that I write and talk about failure, it stands to reason that people want to ask me about my own. And I'm completely fine and and honoured to be able to talk about them. But I've realised that I've done so many of those kind of conversations that I feel like I have a sort of emotional hangover now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, kind of, I just want to hibernate and get into a bath and sleep without being woken by my cat every couple of hours thinking that I'm prey to be hunted. So that's how I'm honestly feeling, as well as it being really lovely to chat to you. I'm I'm quite tired and I've given you quite a downbeat answer so I'm sorry about that. I promise I'll be more fun in a minute. There you go. You're in people-pleasing mode again, Elizabeth. It's fine. This is a safe space <sighs> okay. for you. All right? No judgment. Thank you. you. don't have to apologize for any aspect of you, your philosophy, your success, anything at all. You can tell me to get fucked at any point. If I say something that you think is offensive or just thick, you can tell me and I won't get upset either. I'll just say, hey, let's talk about it. And we'll just be two grown-ups talking about it. How about that? That is just the loveliest, most generous thing you could possibly say to me. Thank you. Now, here's a great, great question for you, Elizabeth, which I bet you haven't been asked. It's sort of more of a statement than a question, but it's easy to see you, Elizabeth, as a paradoxical figure or even to be cynical about your work because you have become very successful talking about failure. How often do you get that Mm one? Um... I get it quite a bit, but it's a valid question and I always relish the chance to answer it. Obviously, I am aware of the irony that a podcast about failure has become one of the most successful things I've ever done. (laughs) But it's important to say a few things. One is, is that I never set myself up as an expert on failure. It's purely that I wanted to do a podcast that I found interesting, that led us into conversations with people that we hadn't necessarily heard before. And for me, that started with things going wrong, rather than the constant cycle, which as a journalist, I was so familiar with, of promoting something and talking about how fantastic it is and how wonderful it was to work with so-and-so and this particular director. I wanted to do something slightly different that would be revealing, interesting for other people to listen to, but also, I hoped, um, optimistic for other people to listen to too and reassuring because we live in a society where we constantly feel under pressure to post the most perfect filtered images of ourselves online and to claim that everything's going according to plan. And that's why it started. And so... I started having these conversations and they were really interesting. And now the podcast has been going for two and a half years. And I realized that therefore I have done a lot of research on failure. I have spent a lot of time asking people who are far wiser than I am about how it feels and how they responded to it. And because of my own natural curiosity, I've read about it and learned more about it. 
And therefore, I sort of see my role now as being a conduit for those experiences. And if I can make them digestible and accessible and readable, and they can also help other people, then that for me is great. And I enjoy doing it. And the other thing that I wanted to say on the flip side of that is that I'm aware that I am nauseatingly privileged. I'm white, I'm middle class, I make a living in front of my laptop. I know, pass the sick bag. And I know that I've had professional success as well, Mm -hmm. but no one can ever know the full truth of someone else's life. And at the same time as I was having a degree of professional success when I was a journalist and I wrote novels, I was also having personally a very challenging time that I didn't speak openly about. So... During my 30s, I got married to the wrong person and then divorced. I tried and failed to have children. I had various fertility treatments. I had the first of three miscarriages at three months. I got into a new relationship that ended out of the blue. It felt like my life was absolutely derailing in a personal sense. Mm -hmm. And that's where my sense of failure came from. And I know that that's not the biggest failure in the world. I know that it's far more easily assimilated than other failures but I wasn't claiming that it was in fact I was claiming that it's something that a lot of people would have experienced and a lot of people might have felt as low as I did and therefore I wanted to do something that created a route out of that and that's how how to fail started an incredibly long answer to your question no that's a good answer sometimes what gets lost is the fact that you know there are things that there are sort of relative experiences which are true and universal for everybody and some things just feel painful regardless of who you are and, and what privileges you have well your former guest zadie smith speaks and writes so eloquently about mm. this in her recent essay collection about the hierarchy of suffering and how you know suffering is its own bubble when you're in it you're experiencing it as your own universe Mm -hmm. i find it slightly distasteful that we are constantly asked particularly as women i don't know if it's the same for men but to show our wounds to sort of have a kind of competitive suffering arms race and to say, no, my voice is worthwhile because I've been through this and that and this and I've had this terrible thing happen to me and I've survived. And I and I sort of rail against that because whilst I will absolutely talk about difficult things that have happened to me if I feel it's helpful for others, there are certain things that I won't ever talk about that go very deep for me that potentially involve other people and I don't feel I should have to keep doing it in order to earn my space because I have a vast array of fantastic podcast guests who can speak to experiences that I can't possibly hope to understand who can speak to what it's like to be a black person a marginalized person someone who is homeless someone who lives with a disability or a chronic illness these are experiences that I can give a platform to and can learn from. I mean, the, surely the the thing is to be thoughtful as much as possible and to not judge people and to consider another person's point of view, to try and cultivate empathy. People are attracted to the self-help genre. Do you see yourself as being part of that genre? I don't really see myself like that, but that's not to say that 
I dismiss it. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to be seen like that. But I suppose it goes back to what we were saying that I've never seen myself as an expert. So I'm not someone who's like, this is how I think you should live your life. I'm much more comfortable saying, these are the things that I think I've learned and they might be helpful to you. And one of the things that I talk about in philosophy is the disservice that I think has been done to us by the positivity movement, mm-hmm. of which Donald Trump is a massive fan. <laughs> but yes, essentially that thing that if you just think positively enough, you can manifest anything that you desire. Now, that's not to say that there's nothing useful in that, because I do believe that you can train your brain to be happier and you can flex those mental muscles so that your resilience can become greater. It's just that I think it marginalizes feeling sad. Mm -hmm. And we're all going to feel sad at various points in our life. And I think that we should be encouraged to learn to expect that as part of life's rich texture. You can't fully appreciate the opposite without having also felt sad. I mean, you can't exist in a constant state of unadulterated bliss because that's just unrealistic, as nice as it would be. So it's more about managing expectation that simply by thinking positively does not mean that everything's going to be great all of the time. And one of my least favourite sayings is good vibes only, which you often see sort of in trendy neon in kind of yoga studios. And I sort of feel, what does that mean? If I'm not feeling a beacon of good vibes, does that mean I'm not allowed to sort of enter this space? Because I don't always feel like I'm just purely atomized with good vibes. I feel a myriad number of different things. And and we should be allowed to do that. And we should be taught how to deal with bad vibes. So so basically I'm just saying a mixture of vibes all the time should be should be the alternative neon sign. <laughs> yeah. That's basically what you keep coming back to, really. At the end of the day, if you're looking for the meaning of life, it's pretty unsatisfactory because it's like, yeah, a little bit of that and some of that, and don't get too hung up on that, and then try that for a little bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but I think the meaning of life is in the living of it. So in the same way that when you write a book, you need to believe in what you're writing. You need to believe in the craft of it and take satisfaction from that. And then you publish it and you need to try as much as possible to disconnect yourself from any opinion that is attached to it from the outside world, because that will destroy you. So so it's that thing of taking joy in the doing of it. And for me, the meaning of life is very much connection and Mm. forging connection with other people and that for me comes through admitting to vulnerability and imperfection yeah exactly i agree okay thanks bye bye sorted the meaning of life (laughs) tick hey everybody in the modern time they got to get themselves a podcast i will do yours and you'll do mine we're sorting out the problems of the world so fast. Now, in the book, at the point where you're at with the podcast and the work you've done so far, you've arrived at seven principles of philosophy. You admit in the book that that number may well change over the, uh, over the years. But at the moment, it stands at failure just is. You are not your worst thoughts. Almost everyone feels like they failed at their 20s. Breakups are not a tragedy. Failure is data acquisition. 
There's no such thing as a future you. Being open about your vulnerabilities is the ultimate act of strength. Now, that last one speaks for itself. They all speak for themselves in various ways, but I think that last one, we're definitely on the same page. You are not your worst thoughts. Now, that ties in with a recurring theme on the podcast, which is the CBT approach to therapy, wouldn't you say? Again, I've never done CBT, but probably... You have you done CBT? No, I haven't, but I've I've got lots of friends who do it and it seems like a very practical approach to realigning your thinking and and helping yourself be happy yeah. in that way. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about when you say you are not your worst thoughts? Definitely. So it's a it's strategy. This was something that was really brought home to me by Mo Gaudat, who is one of my most popular podcast guests of all time, who is an incredible man who developed an algorithm for happiness. He basically said that happiness is about managing your expectation of life. Um, he goes into it in far greater detail and far more eloquent way than I'm about to do. But one aspect of this is realising that sometimes your brain gets caught on an anxious narrative loop. It will always be focusing on the things that you've done wrong or could go wrong. And the key to a degree of enlightenment is to realize that your brain is producing those thoughts as organic matter in the same way that your heart pumps blood around your body as organic matter. You would not think you were defined by your blood, unless you were like Princess Margaret, but mm. generally you wouldn't think you were defined by your blood. And you shouldn't make the same mistake of thinking that you are defined by your thoughts. And Mo takes this to this logical extreme and he actually names his brain Becky. Becky is the most annoying girl at his school who is always pointing out the things that will go wrong. And it means that he can have a conversation with his brain when it's in that anxious narrative spiral. And he gave this example of having had an argument with his daughter. Afterwards, he was walking down the street and his Becky brain was saying, you're a failure as a parent. She doesn't love you anymore. There's no coming back from this. And he stopped himself in the street and he said, Becky... I would like you to present me with objective evidence for that assertion. Because if you don't have evidence for that assertion, I would like it if you could take that negative thought and replace it with a constructive, more positive one. Because generally speaking, unless we're unfortunate enough to suffer from a neurological condition, your brain will end up doing what you tell it to. So if you tell mm -hmm. your brain to raise your right arm, generally it will. And in this way you can train your brain to be more content. Hmm. And it's not easy, but I definitely have done it in my own life. And it really, really works. It's such a sort of simple way of doing it. And it's been incredibly helpful to me personally. Yeah. No, he's a fascinating character, Mo Gaudat, chief business officer at Google X and author of Solve for Happy. And the sad aspect of his life is that, he, well, he struggled with depression for a while and then his son who was 21 i think at the time mm. died uh he he was in hospital in dubai routine procedure that went wrong i mean that's everybody's worst nightmare to lose anyone you love that way but but to lose one of your children i've often wondered how i would carry on and how does he talk about it he talks about it in a couple of ways one is related to what we were just saying. In the immediate aftermath of Ali's death, 
in the months afterwards, Mo would wake up and every single morning his first thought would be Ali died and he would just be in floods of tears. And after a few more months of this, he just realised that he, Mo, could not carry on living with that amount of grief sitting so heavy on his chest. And so he made the active decision that when he woke up in the morning, he would still think Ali died, but he would add, and he also lived. And it was the same thought, but differently expressed. And within that expression, he was able to focus on the joy of having had Ali's love and companionship for those 21 years. And it enabled him to carry on living. And the other thing that he said to me is that Ali was a huge fan of computer games. And he and Ali used to play computer games all the time. And Mo would always be playing the computer game to get to the next level, to win and to finish first. And after a while, Ali was like, why are you playing like that? Because you're not experiencing the full joy of the game, which is that you get to explore every single level and find out all the kind of quirks of this particular thing that you have to do and in doing that you're learning so much more and you're enjoying so much more of your experience Mm. and that is how Mo now tries to think of life he was like you know Ali was only here for 21 years but he really did understand about making the most of his experience and actually life is not a race to the end quite the opposite life is something that is constantly teaching us and we should take time to explore it so all of those things. But mm. I wonder how you found it, Adam, like losing both of your parents, how you have been able to live with that grief. Well, I rationalise it because it doesn't feel like a huge injustice because they were quite old. They'd lived full lives, you know. So that aspect of it is not there. I think that must be a really difficult thing to grapple with if someone dies when they're a lot younger you know a friend of mine her dad died and he was only 60 and that's a weird one as well because you're just not expecting it at that age and you're still in in your prime in a lot of ways you're doing everything that you love to do you just assume that someone's going to have a bit longer than that and suddenly if they're gone it's like oh man i didn't even get halfway prepared for that Uh, i think that must be really really tricky so i didn't have that with my folks But I don't know. I mean, it it sort of rumbles on the process. And I'm in the phase now where I'm really quite confused about what is and what isn't an aspect of grief. You know what I mean? Yeah. So as I speak to you, now we're in November. My mum died six months ago, uh, which isn't very long, really, in the scheme of things. I mean, it it feels like I'm certainly more together than I was then. But then I have bad days and I feel very overwhelmed and I think, well, is this part of the grief? But yeah, losing someone the way that Mo Gaudat lost his son and, and people who lose children in infancy. And I just think that's very, very hard. And I admire people who, who carry on having experienced that. But um, you talk about the fact that you have applied some of your principles of philosophy to your own life having experienced some things that nobody wants to go through, the first of which being divorce. And I think divorce is so common. I think 50% of people that get married get divorced. It's kind of a fact of life for a a lot of people, for half the population. No, my maths is off. (laughs) But um, (laughs) 
For a lot of people, that's... Uh, I couldn't work that out either. Yeah. <laughs> no buckles. Half the population are not married. It's a subset. Okay. Um, but just seeing friends go through it. And the main thing that I feel as if I would feel was just a crushing sense of failure. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, my divorce is, as everyone's divorce is, very specific. And I didn't have children with my ex, which I think makes an enormous difference. Um, I really salute people who get divorced and continue to have functional relationships with their ex for the sake of the children. I think that's a really an unbelievably adult thing to be able to do. So I should say that and I should also say I can't really go into the details of the relationship, not that you're asking me to, because I'm so aware that that's someone else's story too, but it wasn't a great relationship and it took me a while to understand that because I had become so lost in the marriage. It was only when I was trying and failing to have children and I do use that personal pronoun for a reason because it did feel incredibly lonely and I realized that our priorities were different and that it was never going to be as important to him as it was to me partly because he already had children and I suppose then that gave me the courage to feel like I need to do something about this because as you say I felt such failure but also such shame I felt such incredible shame it's one of the scariest things I've ever done and walking out was incredibly difficult and yes I felt such shame did you ever think to yourself like well maybe there's something wrong with me so I've just got to try harder and I'm just going to stick with this Definitely. Yes. I mean, for years. Right. <laughs> I mean, we, we were together all in all seven years. So absolutely. I went into therapy during that relationship. And I remember my therapist saying, you know, it, it can't, you can't make this work on your own. And that was a really big wake up call for me that I needed to be clear that I had tried my utmost, that I had communicated how I was thinking and feeling and given all of that if it still wasn't working I needed to accept my part to play in it and that it was also my fault but also try and extricate myself from that for both of our sakes the amazing realization that I had in the aftermath of that was that the people who I had been most worried about who I felt most ashamed about letting down my parents my best friend were the ones who instantly were without question I'm getting emotional but without question totally there for me and completely got it and it was just a, a real gift and relief because they they sort of knew me better than I knew myself at that stage so they were really able to provide some very necessary emotional scaffolding mm, that's great because I think I remember having that thought like if everything went wrong with my marriage then what would that be like? And one of the things I thought was like, oh, it would be so disappointing for my family. And it would be so like my brother and sister would just go, oh, God, maybe we're all like that. Maybe this whole family's just no good. You know what I mean? I had that thought. 
<laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and they were like it would yeah. it, like they would feel the failure themselves is what I'm saying. It's irrational. I'm not suggesting that that's the truth at all, but it's that kind of irrational thought and worry that you have. Totally. And I was like, oh gosh, how embarrassing. Yeah. Like, how embarrassing, embarrassing it would be right. for them. Had to have come to my wedding and all of this. I just felt yeah. so You wasted our time. <laughs> And what have you done with those gifts? We had to eat that cake. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Give me back all of those silver frames and that crystal decanter. And yeah. And then um, segueing to a sadder thing, really, in a lot of ways, is is the process Mm. of IVF and miscarriages that you've had. Um, that's a harder thing to be philosophical about, I would imagine. And, and um, obviously that's something that I will not experience, but I can't imagine what that's like. And how were you able to apply the principles of philosophy to your life after your most recent mm-hmm. miscarriage when you, I mean, you've been through IVF and everything. I don't know the exact chronology of your experiences but yes so when I was married I had two rounds of IVF unsuccessfully in 2014 and at the end of that year I got pregnant naturally and I had a miscarriage at three months that all happened during the course of one year then uh, my marriage broke down and I had a period of time being single got into a new relationship with someone who wasn't ready to take that next step froze my eggs or did did like everything I basically ticked every single fertility procedure box then happily a couple of years later I met someone who is wonderful and we're now engaged and I had put the idea of a sort of biological conception on the back burner because I thought it was hard for me that had been my previous experience and last November a couple of weeks after my 41st birthday I found out I was pregnant completely out of the blue I had a miscarriage at seven weeks and that's the one that I write about in philosophy. Since then, I've had another miscarriage, this one during lockdown, and that was the worst of all three experiences. I'm sorry. Partly because it was in lockdown. So thank you, Adam. That's very kind. It was very isolating because it was in lockdown and it was what's described as a medically managed miscarriage, which means you have to take pills and then there's just this unbelievable, brutal pain that you go through. And how I used the failure principles was absolutely almost as a challenge to myself (laughs) to show that they worked because I didn't want to put something out there that I didn't believe in. Really, the one that I kept coming back to was that you're not your worst thought. So At that point, you know, I I go to some dark places and I sort of think, I sort of turn against my own body and think it's something wrong with me. And I was able to slightly distance myself from feeling that. And I was able to see it as a consequence of the sadness that I was feeling. It was almost like the discomfort of the grief And it's very difficult to grieve a miscarriage because the birth hasn't happened. So you're grieving something you never had Mm -hmm. and you're grieving the idea of something that you so desperately wanted. And it's sometimes very uncomfortable to sit with that and you feel a bit like a fraud, or at least I did. And and so it was very helpful for me to realise that that was actually just my brain's way of dealing with something that was very difficult. So... I find that very helpful. I also, one of the failure principles, as you mentioned, is that failure is data acquisition. Yeah, what is that? What it means 
in brief is that every single thing that goes wrong will give you some useful data. Right. And sometimes that will help you to get it right the next time. Now, with miscarriages, it's a slightly different thing. But but every single time I've been through a miscarriage, what I've realised is that I'm really strong, <laughs> that I can actually survive it. That is a very emboldening thing to realise, that I actually I'm resilient enough, I'm equipped enough to do this. I kind of know what it feels like. I feel as if this might be a, a, a something that people say which is not a good thing to say. I don't know. Tell me if it is. But... You know, lots of people don't have children and live perfectly happy lives. And it's not the be-all and end-all of existence. And as as I say, like, tell me if that's a sort of insensitive, knee-jerk, like, almost cheer-up thing to say. No, it's not at all. And I have absolutely thought of that and mapped that out and tried to be okay with it. I've tried so hard to be okay with it. The problem is twofold for me. One is, is that I feel I inhabit a world where I'm surrounded by other people's children, Mm -hmm. which makes it, for me, peculiarly painful. So I'm constantly reminded of what I don't have. And of course, one can't have everything. And, you know, I absolutely have thought of what it would be like, and I could live with it. I absolutely could, because I'm lucky enough that writing is a kind of vocational love of mine. And when I'm writing, I never feel alone. So I'm very lucky that I have that. It's just that it brings me to my second point, which is there is a window where a woman can biologically conceive. And I know that I'm at the kind of tail end of that window, if I can mix my metaphors. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it, it makes it more acute, the idea that I need to try right now, right here, because I don't want to regret not having tried in this vanishing space of time that I have, Mm -hmm. which is a very cruel trick played on women. It really is very sort of, it's a very stressful and emotional thing to live with. But I think I always remember um, reading an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And she said she remembers reaching 45 and waking up one day thinking, okay, that choice has been removed from me. And it was kind of sense of relief because she no longer had to think, well, what if? And shouldn't I be doing this? And and she woke up just feeling like, okay, well, that's done and that's not going to happen. And so what kind of an, a meaningful life can I live? So I think it's just because I'm in that specific time zone that it feels a pressing thing to try. And also, I don't know, I mean, maybe you can enlighten me, but so many people talk all the time about how being a parent is the greatest gift ever and you never know a love like it. And and part of me is just greedy and I want a bit of it. I was like, I want to experience this like magical thing, which I know is very hard at the same time, but it's the kind of thing that you can't possibly explain to someone who doesn't experience it. Well, Feel free to tell me that's I bullshit. Know. I mean, I think it is partly bullshit. You know, this is me speaking from a position of incredible privilege with three healthy, happy, I hope, children. And I am very grateful for that and i love them so much but you know once you're tethered to them in that way 
there's a lot of downsides <laughs> and it is frequently a colossal pain in the rectum and also i think i've said before that the reward to sacrifice ratio often seems absolutely way off mm. you're holding out for small moments when everyone's okay and everyone's happy and you feel like ah, everything's cool but then you know a day later you're plunged back into there's something wrong with one of them one of them's depressed one of them is screwing up one of them's any number of things that can go wrong and do go wrong and it's just a, a very different existence we live in a society that just fetishizes parenting yeah to such an extent and at the moment i'm at a stage in my life where i feel <laughs> i get a lot of the downsides of being around children with none of the upsides of being their parent. Right. So I get to be around them a lot. <laughs> and, you know, I'm surrounded by great children, but I also don't get to raise those children the way that I would like. Mm -hmm. And it's just my control freakery. Yeah, <laughs> that's not how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't have that relationship and I suppose I'm sad about that that I don't have the reciprocal nature of love that I would hope being a parent would give me I don't know it's one of those interesting questions isn't it I don't know why I want to be a mother but I do and so for the next couple of years I need to lean into that I think yeah even though I'm really nervous about what lies ahead you know it's a difficult path maybe you want to be a mother for the same reasons that people like you and I care about connecting. We want that connection, that dream of there being no barrier between your thoughts and someone else's thoughts. You don't have to hide who you are from them and they will love you, whatever you are. One of my greatest fears, which I've been working on, <laughs> is fear of unremitting, alienating loneliness. Mm. That idea that at the end of my life, there'll just be no one. There'll be no one. Everyone would have predeceased me. I would have lost various friends along the way for reasons that I don't understand. And I find that terrifying. I'm sure loads of people find that terrifying. <laughs> but it's partly why for years and years, I've just tried to accumulate just a lot of friends. <laughs> and I do have amazing, wonderful friends. But when a friendship ends or when a relationship ends for me, it is completely soul destroying because I feel it is taking me to the brink of that abyss. Mm -hmm. That If I couldn't maintain this relationship or this friendship by being the best version of myself I possibly could, basically just projecting the most perfect version of myself that I could, if I couldn't even maintain it then, like what hope is there for the real me? That's one of my biggest fears. But that's why this is going to sound super trivial, this link. But that's why I love podcasting. Because I do believe that in my podcast and in this conversation with you, Adam, I am not pretending. Like This is hmm. who I am. And to have finally found the professional thing that enables me to be who I am at this stage in life is, is, is like a huge gift for me. So I have hope. I have hope. Elizabeth, you know, I wish you all the best and I'm so sorry you've had to deal with all that. And uh, I hope it goes well. Thank you. Could I have one of your kids? Definitely. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. 
Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Hey, welcome back, Podcats. Rosie. Oh, man. It's cold, isn't it? No, oh, I love you. Come on, let's head back. Ah, the fingerless gloves. My fingerless gloves are not enough to deal with freezing rain. My fingerless gloves are not enough to prevent my finger pain. Why didn't I pick up my normal ones? Oh, yes, I remember why. My fingerless gloves are good for operating technology. What? Okay. Thanks very much indeed to Elizabeth Day. Very nice to talk to her. Oh, it's gone maximum beast from the east out here now. Snowy rain. Hope you're keeping well out there as far as possible, keeping warm. I was on Joe Wiley's Radio 2 show earlier this week and she was talking to me about Simon Pegg's 50th birthday party that I was at with Joe almost exactly a year ago, in fact, before COVID times kicked in properly. And Joe Wiley was DJing at that party, playing lots of very good music. Scroobius Pip was playing... A lot of good music there too, in fact. And I spoke to him this week. I did his podcast, Distraction Pieces. Not sure when that's coming out. But uh, Joe Wiley was saying that she'd been listening to the Christmas podcast I did with Joe when we were talking about being there and meeting Tom Cruise, of course. And what a strange experience that had been. And I forgot that we had mentioned, me and Joe, in our conversation that there was uh, a random guy running around. Actually, there were a few random people running around accosting some of the celebrities. But there was one guy in particular that I mentioned who pinned Tom Cruise down for quite a while and chatted away to him. Anyway, Joe Wiley reckons that that was her son. (laughs) Good effort. That guy's a go-getter. Oh, I'm walking into... I'm walking into the wind right now. This stretch of track. 
ah, why do I come out? I always feel as if I have to come out and do these intros and outros outside because um, I've established the, the format now. So I've got to stick to it. I can't just sit in my room and do the intro and outro. But this is ridiculous. I can hardly feel my face. I can't really open my eyes because the windy snow rain is so sharp and painful. Oh, I have to just turn away from it a little bit. Rosie seems fine with it. She's lower to the ground. Anyway, look, I was just saying that I uh, recommended a handful of podcasts to Joe Wiley and I thought I would share them with you. But it's too freezing for me to go on at any length about them. I'll put links in the description of the podcast. They're music podcasts. So I said I really love the Horn Section podcast, which I've mentioned before. Alex Horn, you know Alex Horn from Taskmaster. Playing music-based games and comedy songs with his brilliant band, the Horn Section, and uh, guests. Really recommend it. Hello, Techno Bird. I recommended Song Exploder, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with already. Really good kind of deconstruction of a single track from a wide variety of music artists. Uh, really recommend uh, MGMT, talk about how to pretend. Uh, Bjork talks about Stone Milker. There's one from Spoon, really good one from John Hopkins. I've mentioned it before. And the one that I haven't mentioned before, I think, is a Pixies podcast, I think it's called. Very well put together, 12-part series, half-hour episodes, nice length, about the making of their last album in 2018. It's great. I mean, obviously, it helps if you're a Pixies fan, I suppose, but it's a very good, well-constructed account of a band's creative process in the studio. Nearly finished that one, but luckily I've also got John Cooper Clark's good long memoir on the go. I Want to Be Yours, it's called. As you would expect from the king of the punk poets, the guy turns a good phrase. I recommend it. Okay, look, this is getting ludicrous. Thanks very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his invaluable production support on this episode. Thank you so much to Annika Meissen for conversation editing. The artwork for this podcast is by Helen Green. Thank you to the hardworking team at Acast for their continued support. Magovti, Magovti, soon I'll have a Magovti. Thank you, most of all, to you, podcats. Wishing you all the best out there. Back next week with another rambly conversation. Till then, quick windy hug. Come on. Ooh, very firm up there. Have you been working out? Take care. I love you. Bye!